from George Fox's journal. I was commanded to turn people to that inward light, spirit, and grace by which all might know their salvation and their way to God. That divine spirit, which would lead them into all truth, and which I infallibly knew would never deceive any. This is the OIM Fundamental Beliefs of Conservative Friends, What We Are Conserving. This is session number 22. It is part two of an outline we were reading that was composed by William Penn and several others. We got through the first four. Let's go on to number five. That Christ is the great light of the world, that lighteth every man that cometh into the world, and is full of grace and truth, and giveth to all light for light and grace for grace. And by his light and grace he inwardly appears to man, and teaches such as will be taught by him, that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, they should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's from John and Titus. I may be repeating myself in some articles here from last week. When we use this word Christ, it's a title, as I said. It means the anointed one, and that is Jesus is the one anointed with the Holy Spirit, completely, fully anointed with the Holy Spirit. It is a reference, a title for Jesus, but it also is a concept of a divine agent, the Word of God, as it's also called, the utterance of God, that divine personal and super-personal divine entity that is even greater than any human, and that is God. And so that Christ, that anointed one, and the word Messiah is just a transliteration of the Hebrew word that means the anointed one. That Messiah is the great light of the world, that is the great spiritual illuminator and illumination, both that who or what illuminates as well as the actual illumination of the whole world, that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And that, of course, is from John chapter 1, verse 9. It's important to point out here that in many modern English translations, they do not translate this correctly is kind of annoying that that happens because those translators, those misguided translators, cannot understand how Christ could enlighten everyone. Their assumption may be that he only enlightens those who call themselves Christian, but that is not the case, that God can illuminate and does illuminate every human being that comes into the world. And that Christ Christ Jesus, as well as that spiritual concept, reality, is full of grace and truth. Grace, the basic meaning of that in ancient Greek, was kindness, favor that one does for someone, an act of kindness or favor. Christ is full of grace and truth. And truth was such a very important word for the early friends. It was an extremely important word. It basically meant one's Quaker way of doing things, Quaker life. That was truth, as well as referring to Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am that divine truth, that divine reality. The word also means reality. And gives to all, to everyone, light for light and grace for grace. So Christ can and does give illumination one time after another, over and over again. 
and grace for grace. He is constantly trying to be kind, just to use a simple word, kind to us. This is God's kindness, his grace. And by his light and grace, he inwardly appears to man. And so it is through his illumination and his acts of kindness, his favors he gives to man, he appears inwardly. He appears within us spiritually to each man, to each human being. This illumination especially is he teaches such people as will be taught by him. Those who are open to being taught by Christ, the illuminator, the light, the light of the world. That denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, they should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And we put that into modern English, that renouncing, rejecting ungodliness in worldly cravings, worldly desires, fleshly lusts, they should live soberly. They should live in a serious manner, righteously, upright, upright in God's eyes, and godly in this present world. That's Titus. So this is so basic as to Christ being the illuminator, the illumination for the world. I am the light of the world, said the Spirit of Christ in Christ Jesus. Number six, that this principle that we're talking about of light and grace, which is God's gift through Christ to man, is that which shows us our sins, reproves us for them, and would lead all out of them that obey it to serve God in fear and love all their days. And they that turn not at the reproofs thereof, and will not repent, and live and walk according to it, shall die in their sins. And where Christ is gone, they shall never come, who is undefiled and separated from sinners. So this principle, this, this concept of spiritual illumination and kindness favors is God's gift to mankind through Christ Jesus that showed us what it's like to, to be godlike. And it is that which, first of all, shows us our sins. This is an important little phrase here that shows us our sins. We can't change if we don't know what needs to be changed. It's sort of a very primeval kind of understanding that you must know what's wrong in order to change it. Otherwise, you're not aware of how it is that God wants us to behave. So this is basically the first part of convincement as understood by early friends. And of course, convincement mostly had a very different meaning. And it meant being convicted of sin, being found guilty of sin, that we become conscious that there is a dark shadow part of us we may or may not be aware of. And that is the first step in this becoming aware of the light of Christ within us and being reproved for it, being found that we have uh, failed understanding of God, our understanding of Christ. This is the first step in this process as understood by early friends and later traditional friends. And this light and grace would lead all out of them that obey it. For those people who are aware of this dark side in them, the sinful side, and they are obeying the light of Christ within them, they will be led out of that initial step to a higher step. So initially, it may be very painful, very difficult, hard, depressing time. But as long as they stick to it, God will, if they are obedient to following what needs to be done, that God will lead them out of that initial difficult step in order to serve God in fear and love all their days. 
As I've said before, this word fear is the Greek word phobos, P-H-O-B-O-S, which both in older English meant both fear and reverential awe, respectful awe, awesome respect for God as the source, as the creator of everything, of all creation, of all the universe. This is an important point made here in terms of convincement, in terms of the initial understanding of what the light does. The light illuminates, it shows. And they that turn not at the reproofs of thereof, those who, who have become aware of some of these sins, these sinful parts of them, do not change, do not turn. The word convert basically means to turn, to turn aside, to turn around, and will not repent. They do not wish to repent. As I may have said before, repent here is true repentance and its true meaning, as friends have understood it correctly. That is, that they have a whole change in mindset, a metamorphosis of their way of looking at themselves and the world and God and their neighbor. Repentance is absolutely basic. And unfortunately, it has changed its meaning for so many people in the English-speaking world, and not just English, too so that it just seems to refer to feeling sorrow or guilt or remorse, but it really means a change in one's whole frame of mind, one's consciousness, one's way of perceiving the world. As Paul said in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by a renewing of your mind, a renovation. You need to have a new type of mindset and to continue and live and walk in it. Those who do not live and walk, again, walk is a biblical word meaning to behave, to act, to conduct oneself. Those who do not conduct themselves according to this illumination, they shall die in their sins. I think you can take that both ways, physically and spiritually. Where Christ has gone into eternal life, they shall never come. It was in something I read in early Christian writings about Christ Jesus now being like a fish swimming in the waters of eternity. And you'll see these early Christian images of fish as a reference to Jesus. They shall never come. Those who do not follow this light of Christ within them. Christ who is undefiled and separated from sinners. This is that principle by which God prepares the heart to worship him aright. And all the duties of religion as praying, praising, and preaching ought to be performed through the sanctifying power and assistance of it, other worship being but formal and will worship, with which we cannot in conscience join, nor can we maintain or uphold it. So this principle of light and grace, obeying that gift that is given to us, that illumination and those kind actions of God, Prepare the heart, prepare the consciousness, prepare one's conscience, one's inner being, one's heart to worship God, to worship Christ in the right way, aright. In all the duties of religion, such as praying, praising, and preaching, ought to be performed through the sanctifying power and assistance of it. It is only through that Holy Spirit of Christ in us, acting as an illuminator, that we can really, truly pray, praise, and preach as God wants us to preach and to praise and to pray. All other worship being but formal and will worship, with which we cannot in conscience join, nor can we maintain or uphold it. This word formal means having to do with forms, those actual physical outward forms 
the ways that we see various denominations and other religions do in terms of having all sorts of rites, rituals, various feasts, festivals, you name it, they've been there. And even if we look at Isaiah in chapter 1, beginning with verse 10, he too laments all the formal ways of the ancient Jews, the ancient Israelites, Hebrews. Unfortunately, they didn't heed his understanding at that time, and they continued with their forms, formal types of worship, which at one time was what God wanted from them and asked them to do. But with the New Testament, with the new legacy of Christ, there is something, this is a higher dispensation, a higher, actually, oikonomia, which gives us a, our English word economy, a new way of doing things, a better, higher, more spiritual way of doing things. And so formal, in terms of just using actual physical forms, material forms, are no longer acceptable. The next word, will worship, is extremely important. I think maybe I should just spend one session on this. It was an important word for early friends and also for traditional friends. The Greek word is ethelothreskeia. And this word was probably a word that the Apostle Paul himself perhaps created, made up. Will worship was the translation given in the King James Version. To give it a more modern translation, I would translate this as do what you want kind of religious practice do as you wish, worship. And this is what Paul was against, that what really must happen is the worship in worshiping God in spirit and in truth, as it says in chapter 4 of the Gospel according to John. I always thought of will worship as doing things in our own will, the way we want to do it. That's part of it, but this Greek word consists of two parts. That first part, the E-T-H-E-L-O, is the root that means want. When you want something, when you desire something, when you wish, it's do what you want kind of thing. And threskia is the word for general religious practice, religious worship. So it's a much broader sense, understanding. It's not just a more individual thing. Friends often use this word to refer to all the varieties of worship one saw, and not just worship, religious practice that one saw in the various Protestant denominations of their time initially. You can look at this word translated in quite a few ways by various English translators, but I think <laughs> what I'm saying is perhaps closer to the real sense of this word. Threskia is not just worship, it's broader, it's all religious practice anything you do religiously. And Othello in Greek means I want, I wish, or just Othello. So it has a much broader sense. If you look at the writings, journals of friends, they will talk about will worship being what they see as the kinds of religious practice that has been promulgated in, in a variety of various denominations. So this is a very strong statement that friends were saying, that God does not care for all that formal worship or all that worship that has to do with anything you want to do, whatever any specific person in a given denomination wants to do. It is a, a very strong condemnation because, again, friends have understood that the only true worship, because God is a spirit, is worshiping in spirit and truth. And just beyond worship is all religious practice, as I was just saying about that individual word. Of course, he goes on here, Penn and the others 
with which we cannot in conscience join, nor can we maintain or uphold it. It's because of what is said in chapter 4 of the Gospel according to John, that true worshipers, as Jesus said, will worship him in spirit and in truth in the future. This is the kind of worshiper that God wants. This is one of the reasons also why friends were trying hard to convince, to persuade as well, those in other denominations to become Quakers, because that is the true worship. It's not that they were opposed to individuals, but they were opposed to these structures that came into being over time with uh, so many various kinds of denominations. And uh, will worship could be a whole session. All right, let's go on to number eight. Worship in this gospel day is inward and spiritual. For God is a spirit, as Christ teacheth, and he will now be worshipped in spirit and in truth being most suitable to his divine nature. Wherefore, we wait in our assemblies to feel God's Spirit to open and move upon our hearts before we dare offer sacrifice to the Lord or preach to others the way of his kingdom, that we may preach in power as well as words, and as God promised and Christ ordained, without money and without price. So in talking about the future that Jesus was speaking about in John chapter 4, worship in this day of the gospel today, then today, is inward. It's inward and spiritual. The true worship is something within. It's non-physical. Because God is a spirit, our worship should be spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that can help us to be spiritual in our worship. And I'm talking not only in terms of actual waiting worship in a group, but at all times, in all forms of worship, in the sense of religious practice. For God is a spirit, and as Christ Jesus teaches, he wishes now to be worshipped. Will means to wish or want. He wants now to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And that's because it's the most suitable form of worship in terms of his divine nature, that spiritual entity, that divine nature of God. Wherefore, so we wait in our assemblies to feel God's spirit to open and move upon our hearts. Again, the word spirit, as I've talked about in some other series, has the basic meaning in the Greek of uh, wind or breath, something that moves. There are a couple of other words, the word water and oil also sometimes refer to the spirit. They too also move, they flow. So we're talking here, when we use the word spirit, about a divine spiritual current, capital C current. So we are to wait to feel God's spirit, that holy gale, that holy wind, that breath to open and move upon our hearts. Of course, hearts, so often in the Bible, refers to our consciousness, to our awareness, so that we become aware of that as God is moving in that Holy Spirit on our hearts. And then, before we dare offer sacrifice to the Lord or preach to others the way of his kingdom, so that we really have to understand that we are being called to do that at any given moment, to preach to others the way of his kingdom the way to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, that holy kingdom, that eternal life. 
as God promised and Christ ordained, without money and without price. And that, of course, refers to that our gospel ministry must be free. It is freely given to someone at a moment, sometimes to people most of the time, much of the time, but it's freely given and we should not charge for it. We should not be asking people to pay to hear us speak or to pay our salaries. At the same time, understanding that if God has called for us to do that function, to be that function, then of course they should receive payment for it if for what their needs are. I think I've also heard people talk about this free gospel ministry doesn't mean it's free for anyone. That's not the sense I have understood in terms of how friends have traditionally used it. It is free in the sense that God can choose his ministers to minister either just in a meeting or in public at any time or whatever. And that is the freedom of God to choose those whom he wishes. Of course, with the understanding that those he chooses truly repentant and humble and holy in what God requires of them. And without price, we should not be asking people to pay a price. Any comments, questions? The metaphor, the explanation that Fox uses when he talks about the human spirit as God's candlestick or lamp, the Holy Spirit lights up our spirit, which I guess does mean our active awareness, affective awareness. So that to worship in spirit and truth is actually to worship with the spirit, capital S, to worship spirit with spirit. It means that worship can only occur for someone who is in the presence of God. I've always thought that makes the worshiping so so completely unifies a person with God. The candlestick image is a good place to put that distinction between will worship and real worship in spirit and truth. He's reminding me that, uh, of course, God can use anything or anyone at any time to express what he wants to have expressed. But in terms of, I think, what specifically Penn and the others here are talking about are those who have gone through that whole process of convincement that whole conversion and amendment of life that they have really, like Paul, where Paul says, I am no longer alive, Christ is alive in me. Christ is the one leading me to say what I'm saying when I say that. And of course, even Paul himself, I forget exactly where at the moment, in one of his epistles says, he did not get this from the Lord, but this is his own belief on something. So Paul himself was more aware also of being led or not being led by God to say something. And of course, there are times, even with, I know myself, I'm feeling kind of led this evening, even though it's been a very mixed up evening, to say some things here. Personally, you know, I kind of feel there are times when I feel led to speak to a group, and I do. And there have been times when I don't. If I'm pressed to, I feel awkward at that point because I think I'm just relying on things I've said before, which were appropriate maybe before and maybe appropriate then, but there's something not quite the same there. The manna in the desert, it, it goes stale after a day. Yes, Nancy. There's one thing I wanted to add too that, and I think he's very right about what he just said, but there are times when he uses people Well, I think he uses us in spite of ourselves. I remember where the prophet was told to speak for the Lord, and he said he couldn't. I think it was John. 
And so the angel went and got the coals, the hot coals from the fire and touched his lips. And I think the Holy Spirit, in a sense, cleanses us. But he also uses sometimes a child or another person in the group that you might not expect to speak what needs to be said. Yes, I agree with that. I was trying to make a distinction between Almost anyone can be asked by the Lord or given that spirit to speak. And it may be not even Christian at times. There is a book by a Hindu, Paramahansa Yogananda, in which he talks about the second coming of, he's a Hindu, but he's speaking about Christ Jesus. And there's a chapter there I remember reading and saying, my, he sounds more like a Quaker saying the same thing than many Protestant denominations would like. Where did he get this from? <laughs> At the same time, I think conservative friends are hesitant to go out and speak, partly because they are weak on this knowledge that is there traditionally for them. There was a 19th century Quaker who said, we will never thrive on ignorance. And I think that's very true. We need spiritual awakening and we need to have those abilities in us to speak to those that we may be called to speak to. I know I'm not someone that can go out onto the street and just start preaching. I don't think so. Maybe there's a point in the future I might be asked to do that. I also cannot see myself going into a church and just start preaching at some moment, like Fox would have. Early on, there was a time when anyone in a church in England when Fox first began, that they were allowed to speak, but later they prohibited that, but he would still speak. It's a kind of complex, we have to look at each situation individually and just what is God asking in an individual session, in an individual time and place. I think perhaps myself, I feel a bit more clear at times when God is asking me to say something or do something. And if I don't, I feel like I'm letting the Lord down. This is a constant need for discernment. Can I ask a question? Yes. Does that mean that what people say is would be new and fresh, but not, it would come from the same stream or current as the Bible? I'm not clear what he's asking. That there would be something outside of the Bible uh, that they are talking about? I actually answered maybe the question he's asking. The Bible doesn't cover many things that are happening in our world today. And yet the Spirit is the same Spirit, that Holy Spirit that was in the writers. They were inspired. They had that Spirit in them. They were inspired by God to write what they wrote and to write it for the generations, for their generation, and of course for us now, but for their generation. And so they would be oftentimes specifically geared to a specific time and place. But there's something very eternal in that spirit so that you don't have two different Holy Spirits. The Holy Spirit is eternal. It was the same 2,000 years ago today, or it was 2,600 years ago with Isaiah. It's the same spirit of Christ, that light of the world that's always been there. It's been there I, since the beginning, the Word of God. I was thinking it's the same Bible, the same spirit. But somehow, by living in God's presence, then there's a freshness about it. Okay, let, let me just say something else, because I do want to get through the next two or three sections also before we finish today. 
Someone like Barclay and Fox could say at their time that if you truly have that same Holy Spirit in you that were in the writers of the New Testament and Old Testament, then you too should be able to write, if you are commanded by the Lord to do so, to write. Those writings should be full of the Spirit of God that was in those writings that became the New and Old Testament. Okay, let's go on to 9 now. This also leads us to deny all the vain customs and fashions of the world and to avoid excess in all things that our moderation may be seen of all men because the Lord is at hand to see and judge us according to our deeds. This understanding in terms of what we were just talking about leads us to deny. The older meaning of deny was to reject all the vain customs and fashions of the world, all the empty, vain was empty, customs and fashions of the world. Of course, customs and fashions are constantly changing especially clothing. That's why friends paid no attention to clothing. After the first generation or two, you had plain clothing that didn't have all the frills and bells and whistles attached to the clothing fashions of the world. Even today, I think we're asked to be very moderate in our clothing. Also here to avoid excess in all things, moderation. And I think that has a lot to do with the sense of being humble of knowing our place in relationship to God, if we truly fear God in the sense of have this respectful awe for him, knowing that he is the eternal almighty power, the source, the creator of everything. And again, to avoid excess in all things, that our moderation may be seen of all men, that others can see that we are not slaves to fashion. Of course, so many people are that way year after year. Because the Lord is at hand to see and judge us according to our deeds. The word judge can mean condemn. It also means to assess. So you can take both meanings here. The Lord is at hand to see and judge us according to our deeds. Okay, we have, let's see, two more here, 10 and 11. We believe the necessity of the one baptism of Christ, as well as of his one supper, which he promised to eat with those that opened the door of their hearts to him, being the baptism and supper signified by the outward signs, which, though we disuse, we judge not those that conscientiously practice them. There is an understanding of friends consistently that there is only one baptism, the baptism of the Spirit, baptism of fire purifying. Of course, baptism meant immersion, an immersion to God, being baptized into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, that immersion into the things of God, into the baptism of Christ. There's only one baptism, one faith, one Lord, as Paul says, and that is the true baptism. Of course, that has to do with true repentance, having this mental psychological transformation of how one perceives oneself, the world, one's neighbor, God, and as well as his one supper. If the Lord Jesus is knocking at our door, if that light of Christ is there, and in the previous verse of Revelation chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, in 19, of course, it mentions repentance, having true repentance, then if Christ is knocking at our door, we are the ones that open it to him. And that is opening our hearts, our, our minds, our consciousness, our conscience. And this is true baptism and supper that supposedly the outward signs signify. 
friends make also, they don't, it doesn't say here, but they explain why you have water baptism and the supper in early Christianity, and it was for the sake of the weak, those who were not very strong in their understanding of the true spiritual kind of religious practice that Christ Jesus wanted his followers in the future to do, to have. So that Penn and others are saying, though we disuse them, we do not use those outward forms of water baptism and bread and wine. We do not condemn those that conscientiously practice them. Because as even someone like Barclay says, perhaps at times, even at those times, there is a true dining with the Lord, having a meal with the Lord, dining with the Lord, having that experience. But it's not because of the outward form. It's because of one's mind being truly repentant and one is in that state of worship where this can happen. Okay. We honor government for we believe it is an ordinance of God and that we ought in all things to submit by doing or suffering, but esteem it a great blessing where the administration is a terror to evildoers and a praise to them that do well. This is very interesting because if you look at the New Testament, you have these statements by Paul saying that, of course, we should obey the government. At the same time, there are times where that may not be true. If you look at the book of Acts, when John and Peter have performed a miracle at the temple and they're brought before the council, the Sanhedrin, and they're told not to preach in this name anymore, the name of Jesus. And they say that there are times when one must obey God rather than the law, the legal people. So at the same time that we are told we should not be rebelling against any government, the government is there to keep order, but there are times, of course, when we must obey God, where the government is not in alignment with God's will. So this hath all along been the general stream and tendency, both of our ministry and writings, as our books will make appear, notwithstanding what ill-minded and prejudiced persons may have strained to misrepresent us in our Christian profession. William Penn, Thomas Story, Anthony Sharp, and George Rook, Dublin, 3rd month, 1698. So this is a very short summary, similar to some others I've already given before in this series. These are the basic things that we, as conservative friends, if we're called upon, should be speaking about, thinking about, that this is our understanding of what it is to be a true Christian. As I said, hopefully soon we'll start reading and discussing in a different series, William Schoen's The True Christian's Faith and Experience. And he goes into much more depth and detail than these 11 articles here or the 15 propositions of Robert Barclay and others who have written things. So are there any further questions at this time? Just going back to 11 for a minute, where it says to submit to the government. I take it you should always submit to the government. You just didn't underline the suffering part. And friends, boy, did they suffer. Right, right. But they didn't think that they should evade the suffering. Like, say, with the draft, there were people who said, well, I'm not going to do that, and went to Canada or somewhere. And then there were people who said, well, I'm not going to do that, and just waited to get carted off to prison for a couple of three years. They were never not obeying the government. 
they were never not submitting to the government, using his word. They were never not submitting. They were always submitting. They were always submitting to the government. By, by yes, doing okay. or suffering. Yeah, I got it there right. time. There was no like actual physical kind of non-submission. They suffered. On the other hand, I do recall Isaac Pennington say that what they were being told was that they should completely submit, but they could not give up saying and doing what they felt was what God was asking them to do. If God had asked them to, say, go into hiding, as other denominations then did after Charles II came into power afterwards, then they would have, but they were not told to do that. And I'm recalling even in early Christianity, at the time of the first Jewish war ending in 70 AD, Christians understood something that they were to leave the city, to stay there. They felt that they were called when the Romans were really going to destroy everything. They went to Pella, Jordan. There are some variations to this, but of course, I think the thing is there's no rebellion against any government as such. Not that they would agree with what the government is saying, because there was a very different kind of persecution under Oliver Cromwell compared to later under Charles II. But it's being led by the Spirit of God to do what needs to be done. And of course, there's no fighting evil with evil is what I'm trying to say. I'm still back on the whether something fresh comes out of this. Like if God's presence is in your life and you read the Bible and you pray and be with other spiritual people, then it would seem it's like a river flowing, but it would be different. In other words, there'd be something new and fresh. And then you could tell the presence was close. It's the same, but it's, it's just new and fresh. I think I understand what he's saying. There are times when I am feeling very close to others, say, during waiting worship, or at times even outside of waiting worship. And there are times I can feel the Spirit of the Lord working in people who are not conservative Quakers or Quakers, too, and sometimes not even Christian. But God is hard at work. The Lord is hard at work trying to get them to be more like what he wants them to be, to obey him, to be in alignment with his will. We are to obey God. There's a very important word that's used by Christians. The English word is Lord, L-O-R-D. Lord is an English translation of a Greek word, kurios, which has two meanings. The one meaning is it's just a polite form of address. The other meaning, the original meaning, gets translated as Lord, but what it means is owner or master. If God, if Christ is our owner, if the Lord God the Father is our owner, we should be acting like a loving, if we are slaves to a loving God, then we should be obeying him in loving just as he is loving, just as he is just and righteous and honest and full of truth. If we're not, and this is not an easy thing, of course, I know myself how difficult this is, so that really most people, when they say Lord Jesus Christ or Lord God, God the Father, they are not aware of, they're saying, owner, my owner, he is my Lord. Now think about that for the next seven days and see what comes up as to the real understanding of what they really should be understanding when they're saying Lord just translated as owner in most of the cases where it occurs, 80% or whatever. My master, my owner, that is being a true Christian. Second Corinthians chapter 9, you are not your own. 
What Hope needs to hear is what Fox said when he went to the Bell's local church the first time he'd been visiting with them. And there was something about Bible quoting and all. And then he said, to, I think directly to Margaret, what can you say? And she burst into tears and understood them. Ah, uh, yeah. So it is supposed to be the speech of your own self as it has been transformed, uh, divinitized by the presence of the Spirit. But what can you say? Right. Margaret Fox, That's... Margaret Fell was really aware of something that they, we, of her time, those folks had stolen the words. They knew the words, but they did not understand. They did not come to a real powerful awareness experience of the true sense of them. Like I'm saying, think of this word Lord as owner or master. And it's probably in that meaning in maybe 80% of the times it's used in the New Testament. And you're going to get a very different understanding of what early Christians and what early Quakers understood about being a true Christian, a true person who is quaking in fear, in respectful awe of their diminutive status in this vast universe in which they live for 70, 80, 90 or more years. I think we need to stop. It's getting quite late. So I think I'll end there. I'm not sure what I'm going to do next week. I might just do one little thing. If anyone has ideas, please just email me. Nancy has something to say. Stop recording. <laughs> Thanks, Nancy. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The quote from George Fox's journal in our introduction can be found on page 90 of the Marcus Gould version published in 1831. A link to this version is in the show notes of this podcast. We welcome feedback on this and any of our podcast episodes. Please email us at oymconservative at gmail.com.